Uh, we all know what it's like when plans don't work out uh, the way that we intend. I'm sure you could share stories. I'll give you a somewhat embarrassing and comical example from my own life. I'll never forget this. When I was a senior in high school, I was driving my first car. And uh, I realized that I needed new windshield wiper blades. So, uh, now I'm no, not a mechanic. My dad and grandfather and great-grandfather are all, were all mechanics. I, and not only am I not a mechanic, I don't have a, any sort of mechanical inclination. Okay? But I figure, okay, windshield wiper blades, how hard can it be? You already know where the story's going. So I go to the store. I get the windshield wiper blades. Um, I ask for some help. I pick some real, you know, savvy ones. I, I go home. I'm in, in the driveway, and I, I start to put them on. I don't read the directions. It's just windshield wipers. You don't really need directions. You take the old ones off. You put them on. And I put the new ones on. Everything seems to be going well. And I went to go throw away the package, and I remember this. I can see this image in my mind. There were two little plastic pieces in the bottom of the package. Now, any like normal person would have said, you probably need those. I thought, they're already on the car, probably don't need those, and I threw the package away. And everything is fine for a few weeks, because it didn't rain. And uh, then I'm, I'm, one day I'm driving down the road with my friend Wes Matthews, one of my greatest friends in high school. And it starts to pour. And I'm talking the kind of rain where you get you got to do windshield wipers full blast. And you're leaning and you're like, if you're on the highway, you got flashers and you're in the right lane. And we're, we're driving and I'm like, don't worry, Wes, because I got new windshield wipers. And so I turn those things on full blast. And they're fine for maybe 30, 45 seconds. And then all of a sudden, the driver's side blade detaches, dangles for a minute, and flings off to the side of the road. And I have just a metal bar going back and forth on my windshield. The, the passenger side one is working fine. So here's what I have to do. We've got a 15-minute drive home. I have to lean over awkwardly close to my friend Wes. We got a lot closer in that moment. And, and look and drive slowly as we get home. Now, we made it safely. Thank God for that. But I, I learned a valuable lesson that day. Uh, my plan for windshield wiper installation was imperfect. That's like the understatement of the century, right? In, in my zeal to you know, install new wipers, I ignored the directions. I neglected important pieces, and, and the outcome was less than desirable. In fact, because that metal bar was going back and forth, until I sold that car a few years later, I had a giant scratch on my window reminding me of my failed plan. I remember selling the car, and the guy said, what, what happened to the windshield? And I was, I don't want to talk about it, right? Now, that's a, a comical example, and I'm, I hope at least you have similar stories that make me feel better about myself. But what about, what about the larger scale plans that fail? What about the career path that you followed that isn't turning out the way you hoped? Or the financial planning you invested in so much that's been thwarted by an unexpected expense? Or the relationship that, that didn't work out the way you'd planned? Or maybe you live under the weight of regret because you're looking back at past plans that didn't work out the way you had hoped. Or maybe you're so fearful of making the wrong plans moving forward that you're paralyzed and you just try to avoid planning altogether. What about those situations? 
We all know that our plans can go awry. What about this question? How does, how does God's plan fit into all of that? Where is he in the midst of all of this? Psalm 132 this morning shows us that while man's imperfect plans fail, God's plan never fails. And his plan is for lasting joy for his people. And the way the psalm does this is by telling us a story about a plan that King David, the greatest Israelite king, had. It was a good plan. It was a godly plan. But it wasn't a part of God's plan. It didn't work out the way he'd hoped. And so God comes along David and he encourages David by reminding him that his plan is a better one that will result in everlasting joy. And that same encouragement is for us in this psalm. When our plans don't turn out the way we'd hoped or when we're plagued by discouragement or disappointment or confusion over our plans, we can rest in this truth that God's plan is for our joy and it will not fail. That's the hope of Psalm 132. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to break this down into to three sections. First, we're going to see the imperfect plans of man in verses 1 through 9. Then we're going to see the perfect plan of God in verses 10 through 12. And third, and finally, we're going to see the joyful result of God's perfect plan in verses 13 through 19. So let's jump in. The first thing we see in this psalm is the imperfect plans of man. The psalm begins in verse 1 with a request for God to remember David and the hardships that he endured. And if you've been with us for for a while over the summer, you know that this section of the psalms we're in, it's a group of songs that were sung by worshipers as they approached the temple in Jerusalem to worship. And so these worshipers are singing this song, and they're asking God to remember the commitment and sacrifice of their greatest king, King David. And it's a very specific historical example here. They're, They're asking God to remember David who had a plan to build a temple for God. So if you notice, this is the longest psalm we've been in over summer, and there's a lot of uh, Old Testament sort of historical context here that's helpful in understanding this, and we don't want to sort of muddy the waters and go too deep in there, but here's a chapter that you have to be aware of to sort of know what's going on. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and even chapter 6. So you'll see a few of those verses on the screen this morning, but if you have your own Bible, you could even sort of maybe, you know, Put one finger there in 2 Samuel 6 and 7 and and keep the other one here in Psalm 132. We'll go back and forth for a little bit. But here's the background of what's going on. In, In 2 Samuel 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now, we've talked about this before in the series. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant uh, made most popular in our culture by Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, It was an actual creation. It was something that was created by men, but designed by God. It was a wooden box with very specific design instructions from God, and it was meant to represent the presence of God or the throne of God on earth. It was a big deal for God's people. But Israel's enemies, the Philistines, stole the ark. They thought, we're going to take this, and and then it's going to help us win battles. It didn't didn't work out well for them. They were plagued with disease, and eventually the ark was returned, but it was away from Jerusalem, where it was supposed to be. It was away from the center of God's people for 20 years. And David says, I'm so passionate about God and his people and the worship of his name that I'm going to go and I'm going to bring it back. That's what he does in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He brings back the ark with great celebration, 
So much so, he's dancing in the streets before people. The king of Israel. He's becoming undignified. He's so joyful because the presence of God is back among the people of God. Then, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's so excited, he says, I've got a plan. 2 Samuel 7 verses 2 and 3. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent? And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David says, I've got this beautiful palace. We've brought this ark back in Jerusalem, but it's in a tent, the tabernacle. It needs needs to have a house, so he plans to build this temple. And that's what's being described for us in these first few verses of this psalm. David's zeal to build a house for God. And listen, there's a lot to be commended here for us. He sets an example of what it looks like to be committed to the Lord. Look at verse 1. David endured hardships for this. This probably refers to just, just the emotional and spiritual battle of valuing God above all else in a nation that didn't really care about it. In fact, David's own wife ridicules him for how passionate he is about the presence of God. So David endured all sorts of hardships. Look at verse 2. He made a vow to the Lord that he was going to do this. This wasn't one of those things, you know, the way we tend to make plans sometimes. Yeah, that's important. So when I get time, when there's margin in my schedule, I'll devote some time to it. No, he made a vow to the Lord. This isn't just a project for David. It's his sole focus. God needs a house in Jerusalem. I'm going to build him a temple. He wanted to accomplish this one thing. Look, he, he pulled all-nighters. Look at verses 3 and 4. I won't enter my house or get into my bed. I won't give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. He lost sleep over this. He refused the comforts of his own home to see God worshipped among his people. In other words, he poured his blood, sweat, and tears into this plan and seeing this temple built. That's how much he valued God's presence among his people. Then in verses 6 and 7, the worshipers who were singing this song, here's how they respond. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it, the ark, in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place and let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Translation, they're saying, David, we hear you. We heard you brought the ark back. We heard about your plan to build the temple, and we are with you. We are coming. We want to exalt God with you. Before the throne. See, these worshipers and David, they show what true commitment to God looks like. The question for us is do we have such zeal for God? Now, there's, the question is not do we have zeal? Nobody questions that. Zeal is defined as great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or objective. We all have zeal. College football started yesterday. Lots of zeal, right? The question is, do we have zeal for God's glory? People pull all-nighters all the time. People stay up late to devote time to work, to study for tests, to binge-watch shows on Netflix or Amazon Prime, right? We pour time and money and investment into all sorts of plans, but are they plans that exalt God 
above all else and seek the good of others? Or are they plans that exalt ourselves? See, if our plans are marked by zeal for God, then they'll produce a willingness to sacrifice so that others would know what it means to worship him. That's what happened for David. It led to a humble sacrifice. But if we're motivated by self-interest, we won't humbly give ourselves for the good of others and the glory of God. Instead, we'll pridefully walk over others for the glory of ourselves. So David sets an example for us here, we should learn from this self-sacrificing zeal of King David and these worshipers. But here's the jolting part of the story. David's plan to build the temple for God was not God's plan. If you're just reading along the narrative in 2 Samuel and you connect it with Psalm 132, it's, it's kind of shocking, isn't it? The ark just returned. This is the great, there's no better king than King David. He's zealous for God. The tabernacle was just a tent. Why not allow David to build a more permanent fixture like the temple? David was zealous for something holy and good, but it, it simply wasn't what God intended. 2 Samuel 7, verses 4 and 5, tells us how he hears this. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And God goes on to explain that it's not going to be David. It's going to be one of his sons who's going to build the temple. Now, knowing how vested David in it was in this. Can you imagine the disappointment? I think you can, because you know what it's like, I'm sure, to have time and energy and passion and money and emotion vested in a plan that you saw crumble before your very eyes, right? slip through your fingers. This is, this is the story. Um, it was such a joy for my heart to study this this week, because this has been the story of our family over the last couple of years. We moved here uh, in 2015 to plant a church in another town. And we had planned for three years up until that point, financially, emotionally, all sorts of preparation to, to plant a church in this particular town. A lot of investment. We, we lost sleep, right? Long hours and passion and zeal. And this was a, a good and holy thing. Like David, we wanted to see God's house built in a city. We wanted to see people worship God. So you can imagine the disappointment when we realized over the last couple of years that it wasn't coming to fruition. When, it, when what we had planned for so much what we thought was what God wanted. We just realized this is a good and holy plan, but guess what? It's not God's plan, and that's okay. And here's what I think so many of us, my guess is we need to hear probably on repeat this morning. It's okay. Your plan crumbled before you. It's okay. And we need, we need to hear this because for so many of us, our identity tends to be wrapped up so much in what we do and how well our plans work instead of who God says we are. So we need to hear 
this truth. Yes, our plans are imperfect. Yes, even some of our best, holy, most holy and most righteous plans may not be God's plans, but it's okay. You are no lesser because of it. God's love for you doesn't depend on how well you exe- execute your plans. It's rooted in Him and His plan for you. Now, verses 1 through 10, if you look at this, just glance down at your Bible for, for a moment. You see there's two requests that bookend this. First, remember, verse 1, and then in verse 10, don't turn away. And just to jump ahead, God answers both of those prayers for David. He doesn't turn away from David, even though it wasn't his plan to build the temple. And he doesn't forget David. When we're bearing the weight of disappointment from our imperfect plans, God has not forgotten us. He has not turned his face from us. He confronts, he actually comforts us with the reality of his perfect plan. And that leads to number two. Number one, we see the imperfect plans of man. And then number two, we see the perfect plan of God in verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, we see that request for God to honor this promise to David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. So it's as if the worshipers, looking back, they know what has happened. It's as if they're saying, okay, uh, David didn't get to build the temple, Lord, but you did make him a promise. Don't forget that promise. I love that. The Psalms are full of that. God's people reminding God of the promises he made, claiming those promises. And so God answers in verses 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath before which he will not turn back. One of your sons of your body, I will set on your throne. Verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. God's saying, I won't forget you, David. I haven't forgotten you, but you have to understand something. My ways are not your ways. My plans are not your plans. In fact, I have better things for you. That's what he's telling David. David, you want to build me a brick and mortar house, but I want to use you and your dynasty to build a household of people. David, you want to build something that will temporarily house my presence for one nation, but I want to, through your lineage, bless all nations. It's almost as if he's saying, you're thinking too small, David. You want to build me a temple, but through you, here's what God does. Through David, he brings the true temple, the true presence of God, Jesus Christ, the son of David. What does God do? He comes back and reminds him and shows him, yes, this is not the plan I have for you, but my plan's good and it's better and it's perfect. So here's here's how God said it to David after breaking the news that his son Solomon would build a temple instead of him. 2 Samuel 7, 16. He says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God disrupted his plan, but he reminded him of his perfect plan. He does the same for us. Now, I want to pause here. We have to acknowledge a major difference between us and David, David's situation and ours. Uh, God, you may be hearing the story and think, wait a second, God spoke directly to David. Like, wouldn't it be great to just have a Nathan walking around, just like at your side, just a prophet? Like, this is my prophet. Like, we all had one. 
and you have a question, hold on, let me ask God something. Nathan, can you check on this for me? Yeah, and he gets a direct word from the Lord. That's not how it works for us. David and Nathan got direct words from God. And so what, what about us? How, how do we know God's plan for our life? When I was a youth pastor, we would do these Q&A sessions where we'd gather questions um, and then we would study, the leaders would study beforehand and spend like an hour or so just answering questions. And the, the top question I got from juniors and seniors in high school was, what's God's will or what's God's plan for my life? How do I know God's plan for my life? It's a great question. Right? They're entering into high school. They're processing. I'm about to enter the real world. How do I know what God wants for me? Now, we, we may be in different stages in here, but it, it may be the other side of that. Did I miss God's plan? Or how, how do I know if I'm living God's plan right now? Great and important question. So what I want to do is give you some biblical categories that will sort of help you think through God's will and what that means. Because I'm convinced that we don't think of, we don't think of that question in the right way. And so, what are some biblical categories for God's plan or God's will? And I'm using those words interchangeably, plan and will. Here's what we see when we come to God's word about God's will. First, we see God's will of decree. God's will of decree. Or you could call this his secret will. This is what's been ordained by God from all of time. It's a will that can't be thwarted. It's going to come to pass. No one can get in the way of it. You can call it, sometimes the Bible calls it sovereignty, God's sovereign will. He's in control over every aspect of history. Here's a text for that, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's God's will of decree. He decreed it, it's going to happen. It's a secret because we just don't know. Sometimes we see glimpses of it because it's already happened. We don't know how it's going to happen. It's in his mind. Then we see God's will of desire. God's will of desire. That's the second one. So number one, God's will of decree or his secret will. Number two, God's will of desire. Or you could call it his revealed will. This isn't a secret. This is what God has revealed to us in this book. This is what he expects of us. This is how he wants us to think and live. And it can be thwarted, it can be disobeyed, and it can be ignored. Even the most faithful Christians don't obey God's will of decree or His revealed or His will of desire perfectly, right? To give you a text for this, and this is just a great uh, memory verse. You can add that. This is an aside. But Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? that we may do all the words of his law. Those are the two categories that we have of God's will when we look at the Bible. Now, if we're not careful, here's what happens. We can add this third category that's not found in in the scriptures. We can call it the will of direction. Let's call it that. This is what Kevin DeYoung calls it in his book, Just Do Something. I highly recommend that book. And this is the idea that God has set a specific very specific plan for your life, where you're going to work, who you're going to marry, how many kids you're going to have, whether you should have a cat or dog, just say no to both, right? And you've got to figure it out. You've got to walk through the right door. Don't walk through the wrong one, right? 
It almost treats God as if he's got this secret code that you need to crack to live out his will for your life. That's just not what we see in the Bible. In fact, if that's your understanding of God's will, two things will happen. Number one, you'll either be so paralyzed by fear that you're going to be outside of God's will that you never do anything. Do I talk to this person or that one? Do I take this job or that one? Do I marry this person or that one? It's not that God doesn't care about those things. It's just that he doesn't expect you to know his secret will before you move forward. So you'll either be so paralyzed, if that's your understanding of God's will, or you'll be so burdened by past decisions. You'll, You'll look back and say, man, I missed God's will for my life. So much so that you won't be able to enjoy what God has for you in the present. You won't be able to move forward. And that's not what God intends for us. So what do we do? We submit to and trust to God's secret will, his sovereign will, his will of decree. And then we seek to know and follow his revealed will in his word, what he demands of us. And then we just live accordingly. We make plans. We move forward. Here's how St. Augustine, the African bishop, put it. He said, love God and do what you want. That sounds kind of provocative, but what is he saying? He's saying what Jesus tells us, seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added to it. Here's how Kevin DeYoung puts it in his book, Just Do Something. He says, so, it's very practical here. So, go marry someone, provided you're equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. Go get a job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or nobody, but put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and preoccupation with the future. And for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. He says, don't wait for liver shiver. This sort of sense of feeling, like I'm going to get this Holy Spirit feeling to tell me what job to take or where to go. He says, if you're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. What a freeing thought as we think of God's plan for our life, right? right? Jesus sums it up for us. You can write this down. Today, Kevin told me God's will for my life. Matthew six thirty three. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If you go back and read Matthew 6, these things are all of the things that plague us with anxiety. Where's food going to come from? Where's clothing going to come from? What's going to happen tomorrow? Where are, we, where, where are we going to be in the future? And God says, no, seek first the kingdom. All these things will be added to you. We took this council as our time was coming to an end. In, in Arlington was the other town we were seeking to, to plant this church. We sought first the kingdom of God. We realized, okay, this is a part of your plan, God. We, by grace, trusted his secret will. We sought counsel from God's word and from other godly people. We prayed. And, and here we are. God worked in, just in an unimaginable way. We made decisions. We planned. And you know what's so interesting is now, looking back, looking back, we see God's secret will revealed, right? That phrase, hindsight's twenty twenty. if you're a Christian, that's a holy phrase. You look back and you see God was working in such a way to bring us to a place where we could never have imagined how we got here. But thank God that he is working. Right? And this is... This is what happens in this psalm. He doesn't forget me. He doesn't forget you. He doesn't say, oh, they missed my plan, so they're back there somewhere, and I'm just going to keep going. And he doesn't forget David. 
This is the promise of verse 12. God kept his promise. Someone's going to be on your throne. At this moment, at this very moment right now, the descendant of David, King Jesus, is sitting on the throne of David in heaven forever. That means verse 12 has been fulfilled. God's plan is perfect. It doesn't leave us behind. And this leads us to number three, the joyful result of God's plan. The rest of the psalm is devoted to just showing the greatness of God's plan for David. And here's the good news. It's also a plan for us as well. It's it's one of those clear passages in the Old Testament that points us to Jesus. It's God's plan for salvation, for those who come to Jesus in repentance and belief. And as, as we walk through verses 13 through 19, I want you to notice the parallels in this psalm. At the beginning of the psalm, the psalmists are making requests. And in these verses, God's answering them. And we see, we see three results of God's plan. The first thing we see is that God dwells with us forever. In verse 7 and 8, they make the request. Let's go to the dwelling place of God. Let's worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. They're saying, we want God's presence. And God answers in verses 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. That's the people of God. He's desired it for his dwelling place, and this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. In the good news of the gospel, the the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in his people. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple? God's spirit dwells in you? That promise was fulfilled when Jesus gave us his spirit. And here's here's even better news. Not only does God dwell with us here and now, but there's a future day when he will dwell with us without any of the baggage of sin that entangles us and all the pain of failed plans. Revelation 21. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And there he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's God's plan. I want to dwell with you forever. Verse 9, we also get the joy of salvation. They ask in in verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. And God answers, verses 15 and 16. God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'll abundantly bless her provisions. I'm going to satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. You want these leaders in the temple to be clothed with righteousness? You want them to be godly people? God says, I'm going to do better. I'm going to clothe all of you with my salvation. You're going to be joyful. That's what God does for us in Jesus. God's plan in the gospel is to take unrighteous people like you and me and clothe us with his salvation. He lays down his sinless and righteous life on the cross in our place, and he rises from the dead, defeating sin and death. Not only does he take away our sin, that's part of the gospel, he takes away our sin, but then he gives us, he clothes us with his righteousness. And as if that weren't enough, he blesses us abundantly in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And he makes us priests, ministers of his gospel, to take that to others. Well, of course, her saints will shout for joy, verse 16. 
How could we respond any differently to such a message? And then lastly, we see, this is the culmination of God's plan. Jesus gets the crown. So the joyful result of God's plan is God dwells with us forever. We get the joy of salvation, and Jesus gets the crown. Verse 10 is such a key part of this psalm. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Don't forget, David, don't turn him away. And God answers in verses 17 and 18. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. He's saying in the, in the gospel, God raised up a horn. That's a symbol of strength, by the way. A horn of salvation and a light to the world. That's Jesus. And his strength is going to defeat his enemies. And his light will never burn out. His crown will never fade. Do you see what God has done in this psalm? He's taken every plan and every request of Psalm 132 and he's fulfilled them in a far more extravagant way than David or the nation of Israel or any of us could ever imagine. It's as if God is saying, listen, you wanted some fast food. By the way, I love fast food. It's just a confession. <laughs> it's good, it's tasty, it's quick, right? But, but, but over the long run, it's, it's really not a good plan for your health. God says, you want, you want this fast food right here, but I want to give you a feast that you couldn't even imagine. This is what would lead the, the Apostle Paul to say things like this in Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his power at work within us. That's God. When your plans fail, remember that even our greatest plans will not bring us the promises of the gospel. So Jesus says to us today, whatever our plans are, come, lay down your plans. Yes, I care about them. I care about every single detail, but I care far more about you than the outcome of your plans. So come, Find rest in my presence. Find the joy of salvation in me. My plan for you is good, and it will never fail. If you keep reading on in 2 Samuel chapter 7, do you know how David responds when, we, when he realizes that his plan to build the temple is not going to happen? Here's how he responds in 2 Samuel 7, 18. Then, the king, then King David went into and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? He responds with a prayer of gratitude. I was invested in this plan, but it wasn't your plan. But that's okay, God, because you are good and your plan for me is perfect. Who are we that God would bestow on us the plan of salvation? So let's trust his secret plans. He's sovereign and good. Let's by grace aim to know his revealed plans and will for our life in his word. And when our plans don't turn out the way we'd hoped and we're plagued with disappointment and confusion, let's rest in the truth that God's plan for us is for our joy if we believe in him and it'll never fail. Let's pray together.